Welcome to the Addiction Connection. We like to believe the opposite of addiction is actually connection, and we are going to attempt to educate you and possibly even entertain you while we navigate all topics addiction. Hi, I'm Dr. Kirk Devine. And I'm Dr. Heather Bell, and we both provide primary care and addiction services. It's our goal to help you learn more about the disease of addiction and its treatments. Welcome back, Dr. Heather Bell. <laughs> I was waiting, looking at you, waiting for you to say that. I, yeah, usually we we kind of Stumble, joust, but we joust over who's going to start. And ultimately, I'm, you've I'm, been that one. I'm taking over. You also like to say the thank you the most, by the way. I do what? You always like to be the last one that says thank you. Yeah, I do. You do, yes. It's uh it's a thing. But today, we're... Because I, I fill in all the intelligent content between the hello and the thank you. That's an opinion. Um, so today, we're kind of continuing what... Hold it. We weren't here last week. We weren't here last week. <laughs> Apologies all. You know, we wrote that book. I like to call it a book. It makes it's, us sound way more cool. It's more of a manual. We wrote a book a couple of years back and then rewrote it and we're on the third... Third edition. Well, it pretty su- much sucked before, so we're fixing Isn't that again. crazy? I remember when we finished, when we were doing the second one, we're like, God, what were we talking about? Like, we were so not good. We've, and changed, then, yeah, we've and, changed a lot. And now I'm looking at what we thought was so amazing going, oh, we are still not good. It's like, and then we'll read this one in about two years and we'll go, I think we're I think we're still stupid. I think we still need an update. Anyway, so why we're talking about this manual on and on and on is why we were not here last week because this manual is due in like a hot minute, like Wednesday. Well, here's that's a that's kind of a lie because you were in Oregon. I was also in Oregon running. I was here. No sleep. I strongly considered doing this with my one of my grandchildren. Uh, but they knew very little about uh, <laughs> opioids in, in older older adults. So, but that's not what we're talking about right now. Well, that's what we. I would have if you had. You could have had a whole conversation with them about sugar addiction. Yeah, but they don't get to eat sugar, right? That's true. Yeah, they don't eat much sugar. Mine do. Um, but yeah. Anyway, so I want to go back to the manual for a quick hot second because okay. it is going to be accessible online now, and maybe if you need a paper copy, we will be more than happy to figure out a way to get one to you because I know some people, especially the older adult population. Hey, look, I found it. Um, well, like I, the paper copy, but what will be in it? Yeah, I'm just and, whatever. And I think, well, I think what people should know you is. You want to explain it? Do you want me to? The manual? Yeah. Sure. I mean, it's really about how do we take care of patients with opioid use disorder in communities. And it's something that we did as a part of a, a grant that we had years ago that we're kind of revamping now with, uh, with Stratus Health. And so it's. Um, it's just something that people can take and kind of look at how what how they can affect their communities. And it's going to be on a website. What's the name of that website? It, the website? The core. It's Tredis Health Core. C-O-R-E. Yeah. Opioid site. But the first, there's two different sections to the manual that are important to note. Is The first section is kind of broken down into every little aspect of things. So there's a whole like chapter, if you will, on obstetrics. There's a chapter in... How do you know who to evaluate for their, you know, opioid stewardship thing? And then the other part is any type of form or protocol or anything, care plan, examples, all the handouts, all the things. Anybody and can have it. It's free. It'll be online. We're giving it all away. We have to thank Minnesota Department of Health, though, and yes. the COSAP grant. Yeah, COSAP grant. COSAP grant. So anyway, 
we'll get you more information probably next week specifically. But let's Back to talk sugar. about sugar. So this is the second. Third. Is this the third? <laughs> third okay, Jesus. Third there was podcast. A, there was all. a lot of stuff on sugar. I don't know. I think Portland actually just tried calling me. If y'all heard my phone, probably telling me I actually won the relay this last weekend. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and you're also going to be going to the moon and or to the OR with my broken ankle. So yeah, they're taking you to the moon in that new moonshot that they're de- taking. But anyway, so let's talk a little about about accumbens, the nucleus accumbens, accumbens acetylcholine, and society satiety, <laughs> satiety. Wow, signaling. So the last couple episodes on sugar addiction were really historical. I remember my mother-in-law said, explain the history of this to me. And I'm like, you got to listen to the podcast or watch the echo because it's complicated. And I apologize because it is complicated. So starting this week, we'll have actually, I think, one more on sugar after this one too. Seriously? Mm -hmm. I probably won't be here for that one. That's okay. I'll bring one of my I'll bring one of my daughters who literally can tell you all about sugar. Yeah. And uh, but this week will be a lot more understandable in a way that you can start to think about it when you're craving Skittles. I don't like Skittles. That's not I just true. had some chocolate donuts. I was just say Kit Kats or wax donuts. Anyway, so the accumbens acetylcholine. And how do you say that word? Satiety. How come I can't say that? Like Satiety. you can't say the word war road either. I can't. I can't say that word. Satiety signaling. Well, you can't say well butrin. Anyway, so acetylcholine is released between the ner- the neurons in the brain. Less than 2% of the neurons in the nucleus accumbens. So not a huge amount of acetylcholine in the nu- nucleus accumbens, which of course is your like feel good area of the brain. Hmm. Is that the easiest way to describe the nucleus accumbens? I think so. And so what you're saying is this kind of modulates that whole effect of feeding. Yeah. So acetylcholine has a lot to do with feeding. So what hmm. happens is if you were just allowed to eat whatever you wanted and am, as actually. you're eating and you are actually getting more full, i.e. not needing to continue to eat, the acetylcholine actually goes up. And then in the brain, that triggers you to say, oh, I am full. I no longer need to eat. So acetylcholine goes up at the end of a meal to kind of trigger satiety. Well, here's the thing. When I'm eating Chinese food, I don't think that happens because I just keep eating. It's very interesting how that works. Mm -hmm. So dopamine usually puts an inhibitory action on the acetylcholine. Hmm. So... When you eat a lot of, or I got to think of how to word this in a a way that semi makes sense. That I would actually understand it. Yes. Hmm. Basically, dopamine and acetylcholine are opposites. So when the dopamine is high, telling you, woohoo, we need something to make us feel good. Maybe it's sugar, maybe it's food. The acetylcholine is low. As you enjoy whatever it is that makes you feel good, whether it's sugar or food or drugs, um, or substances of any kind, as you're enjoying those, the dopamine goes down over time. We've all seen the charts, you know, dopamine spikes and then it goes down. Correct. As the dopamine goes down, the acetylcholine goes up. Hmm. And That's you quit how eating. that works. So if you somehow use a lot of anticholinergic drugs, the dopamine goes up and stays up, so you actually uh, eat more. Well, hmm. 
So let's just kind of avoid that. <laughs> so let's talk about a little bit of things to explain this a little bit more. So you're talking like some of the things like neostigmine, which is actually a anticholinergic agonist. Acetylcholine agonist. Agonist. So me- meaning it acts like acetylcholine and agonist acts the same way. And that would make me less. Correct. Even if you are in a deprived state. So even if you've been in like starvation mode and you abuse something like neostigmine or another acetylcholine agonist, you will still eat less. I'm there now. I didn't have supper. I had leftovers. Mm. Anyway, if you have a lesion of the cholinergic interneurons, meaning you're going to have an overabundance of acetylcholine because nothing is like blocking it or lowering it or it's not able to understand its signaling, you're also going to decrease your palatable food intake. So you're saying you wouldn't eat, you would eat less of the things you kind of like. Exactly. Oh, I can't imagine that. But okay, if you think it's true, it's, it's true. I don't. This is science. Oh. I'm just I'm just the interpreter of so all if, the scientific literature. So if I called Bill Nye the science guy, he'd say this was true. <laughs> just checking. I'm just I'm just going to leave that one right there cuz that was an interesting choice of human. Okay, although I watched that in elementary school a lot, middle school. My kids watched it. That's because we're the same age, your kids yeah. and I. Okay, so all these medications, and this is why this is actually important when we're talking about satiety and sugar and all of the things, is that medications that have been developed to help people lose weight or to help people eat less, so things like fentermine or fenfluramine, which is no longer out there because they cause you know bad things like heart attacks. So if you inject that directly into the areas of the brain, like the nucleus accumbens, hmm. The acetylcholine goes up, and therefore you eat less. First off, I'm just going to say that's got a sting when you inject that, you know, through know, the, like, yeah, that's going to hurt. I, you know, you got to be pretty, uh, I don't know why people would just prefer that over just going out and running. Well, running's painful, but other than that. Um, but injecting things into your brain is not. Anyway. Yeah, that would be. So you're going to talk a little bit now about aversive stimulus. I am. So aversive stimulus. So if there's something bad, like you eat, have you ever played the game Bean Boozled? Never have. Oh my goodness. Okay. So they're like jelly beans and there's like two different, like there'll be two white ones. Okay. One of them you eat tastes like buttered popcorn and the other one tastes like dirty gym socks. Okay. Okay. There are, there's a rotten eggs that's paired with something else and you can't What's tell the, point the difference here? the point is that it's funny to spin it and then you have to eat it and you have to eat whatever one and it's comical my kids oh anyway one time i had to do the rotten eggs and every time i opened that garbage can i like threw up in after eating it because it was that bad i still smell it so How's if that? you were yeah. to eat one of those rotten egg dirty gym socks and all the icky ones yeah. of those that would be an aversive stimulus that automatically decreases your dopamine because you don't want something that's not enjoyable. Oddly, there's people that like the smell of dirty gym socks, but we won't go to that whole discussion. That's a whole different thing. I'm talking about eating them. No. Okay, well, no. okay, eating them. Same, whatever. So I guess. So whatever is aversive to a human drops okay. the dopamine. Because again, if you like it, your dopamine shoots up for a period of time. All right. So if it's bad, it decreases your dopamine, therefore increases your acetylcholine, and then you don't want it. You're done, you're full, you're going away from it. Hmm. Isn't that crazy? That is really strange. 
But then neostigmine. It does. Can, it can provoke something different. Yeah. So if you put the neostigmine in, even with the acet- the aversive stimuli, again, the neostigmine is an agonist. Okay. So I'm with you. What am I going to do? I'm confused all of a sudden. Well, that's not unusual either. Because it's a false, false aversion. So it's going to make you want to eat. But neostigmine is the opposite. I wonder if that's a typo. It could be a mm-hmm. typo. Well, the it reality is, is here mm-hmm. is that if I'm eating a, a, a jelly bean that tastes like a dirty sock, you're gonna it's feel, shutting things down. You're not going to want to keep eating jelly beans. I mean, I'm pretty sure it's shutting things down. But that's the thing. What if you spun a good one the next time? I don't know. I'd or probably stop the game right there. what if you spun the rotten eggs one? <laughs> so basically the whole point is feeding will bring out a rise in dopamine release followed by an increase in acetylcholine signaling I'm full. So this is a very normal cycle. So I don't know if you're even going to cover this, but does this have something to do with obesity where that doesn't happen? I don't know if we're really going there. Um, I mean, my assumption is you don't We're going to get there in like a little while, but first we're going to talk about, you know, this is the addiction connection. So we're going to talk about different substances and drugs uh, and how was it on, impacts this. I thought I was on a whole different podcast. I mean, if you want me to spin it, I can, but that will let's confuse move to, my brain. Let's move to the effect of drugs of abuse and withdrawal on acetylcholine. So... Acetylcholine is release, or the release is decreased. So there's le- less acetylcholine coming out in certain withdrawal states. In, nope. If a certain drug of abuse is there. So, like if you, um, so meaning if it's, if you, okay, let's say, how about this? If you take opioids, alcohol, or benzos, for instance, okay, the acetylcholine won't go up and therefore you will inc- increase your food intake. Hmm. Not always, but yeah, it's funny in the brain. It seems like some people it's it goes one way, and some people it goes another. Right, but as a general class, okay. these ones actually don't let the acetylcholine go up, so therefore you're not getting that signal of I'm full. Now, whether or not that means you want to take the effort, like finances or anything, to go get it. I mean, because we've talked about this at some other point that people who are using opioids, for instance, often don't eat. Because it'll blunt that impact yeah. of the substance. Well, and then if you think about the stimulants, and we've ta- we talk about this frequently, people, you know, the cocaine, the amphetamine, the nicotines, that increases your acetylcholine. Yeah, so it's the opposite of the opioids, alcohol, benzos. Right, stop so your, you don't eat. You, so if you're increasing your acetylcholine, you don't want to eat. Like your body is just full. You are just not hungry. So with cocaine, amphetamines, nicotine, you are just not hungry, which is why when people quit smoking, they often gain weight. It's not just because they need an oral fixation like smoking a cigarette. It's because they have that drop. Wow. So the acetylcholine drops to like lower than normal levels. So therefore they're never getting signaled that they're full. I'm glad I didn't smoke because then I wouldn't stop and gain weight. Makes it harder to run. <laughs> Gosh. It's complicated. It is complicated. Hmm. But I mean, especially the cocaines and the amphetamines and the nicotine really makes sense. The opioids and the alcohol and the benzos are a little bit more complicated. Well, but think about when you're drinking. When people drink, people, they tend to snack. They tend to snack. Because those nachos at 1 a.m. just don't sound like they're so bad anymore. Hmm. Yeah, interesting. But it's funny because it, I've had patients who had opioid use disorder 
And they, I've had some that have lost a lot of weight, but I have some that have gained a lot of weight. It's interesting. I mean, I can think of a couple of patients that who, when they quit, lost a lot of weight, which yeah. is interesting. I've had a couple do that actually as yeah. well. Okay, so if you're in withdrawal, your acetylcholine is elevated. You're in withdrawal, you're not wanting to eat. Your body is in like protect me mode because you're like vomiting and being really sick, especially if it's opioids. If you can somehow increase acetylcholine in the nucleus accumbens falsely, it will actually can help prevent addictive behaviors for cocaine. And then it throws in morphine, which totally goes against everything we just said. But to me, this actually kind of makes sense if you take away like the fancy things. So if you can increase your acetylcholine falsely, then the dopamine doesn't rise as much, remember? Because they're opposites. Yep. yep. So that would kind of make sense. It would. Except then they don't eat. But You know, it's interesting because when we, and you, it's interesting that you talked about morphine. And I don't know if I told you about this patient, but I had this patient who was stopping heroin on his own 25 years ago. And he realized that when he was in withdrawal, he, if he ate sugar, <coughs> cough, cough, <coughs> yeah. uh, that if mm-hmm. he ate sugar, he actually had helped. Yep. And so he, he says, I, he told me this whole story, how he went to the grocery store, bought an entire bag of snacks, sugary snacks, locked himself in his basement for about five days and never used heroin again. But he ate all those. Mm-hmm. All if you those. reference back to one of the previous two podcasts, we talk about that, especially in alcohol. But that's interesting that your patient with opioid use disorder also, he said it was the only thing that kind of took the edge off. Yeah, if you have a hangover, man, go eat some sugar. Mm, That's interesting. Been proven. <laughs> so let's talk about the difference in food and drugs. Okay, so in, you know, fortunately and, and unfortunately, feeding is you know a natural thing we need to do, um, and so therefore there's some differences in restricting of feeding that's different than restricting of drugs so why do we not become as addictive to food as we can to drugs of abuse uh that's a great question i hope you're going to answer it there yes because there are other factors like this mechanical factor like the size of your stomach (laughs) that's a limiting factor i I get that i can stretch but it is at least on face value initially it is a limiting factor there's also other chemicals that play in besides just dopamine and acetylcholine when it comes to feeding. Okay. Just like, you know, things like serotonin can play in with drugs in certain aspects. So CCK, cholecystokinin, which is also something, a peptide, when you are eating, if that goes up, it also tells you you're full. It signals satiety. Again, so you have that. That is not working when I eat Chinese. (laughs) You have that to stop eating, whereas you don't have that with substances of abuse. Can't you buy like CCK? Could I like inject that when I go to a Chinese restaurant? No, you just got to enjoy it. It's the intermittently. It's just if you intermittent use of any kind of stuff, you're not supposed to just cut out one food group because then you'll yeah. Also that. Bursts of dopamine that you get when you first use it, just like in amphetamines, which burst up to a thousand times the normal and then kind of wanes down. You never quite get to that same level. That happens also with food. Really? So you don't get that effect over time. It's like you with your chocolate wax donuts from the grocery store or the gas station. They're not wax. They're 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 like the ones that are like 
chocolate, but they look like Max, I, everybody. Y'all know what I'm talking about. I rarely and eat those. notice I've never bought you the generic ones just for fear that it's just not going to be quite as good. They're not. <laughs> I mean, I wouldn't anyway, know, but I don't think so they would be. It's interesting to me, though, because you will buy two packs. You will easily eat one pack and eat a couple out of the second, and then you will be done. That's true. Why? Do you feel full, or does it just not have that same rush of this is the best thing ever my cck goes up but i it's also the dopamine has waned to a point that you're no longer getting the same pleasure out of that sixth donut as you did out of the first one well to be clear there's five in a pack i think so i probably seventh donut. (laughs) but but i think that there used to be six in there but they've cut it back well so you're saying that it's diminishing returns is basically what we're talking about here correct I had a I had a preceptor once when I was in medical school. She was an OBGYN of all things. And she was like the healthiest eater ever. But I said, do you ever eat any junk food? She said, well, her, her weakness was like ganache or even ice cream. I frankly like, don't know what ganache is. It's like thick chocolate sometimes on the top of chocolate cakes. I no. know. It wouldn't be my one go-to choice. But she, she said if she has ice cream, for instance, she'll take like a bite, maybe two. And then she's done. She's like, because if you really pay attention to the eating of it and how your body feels when you're eating that first bite or two, by the third bite, you just don't get the same positive sensation with it. And I... And it's all about the hormone. And I was in my head thinking, you're nuts because it's ice cream. Give me the whole tub. But Hmm. it was interesting because she like had figured this out without figuring it out. Hmm. So, and that dopamine increase is just not the same as what it is with substance of abuse. Yeah, not as high. Not as high. I mean, again, you know, if you're looking at methamphetamine, a thousand to two thousand percent, whereas you're talking food with what, you know, six hundred, eight hundred max. The initial surge might be three, four can match. However, you last you forgot to look at this last two bullet points. So The initial surge, even if, let's just say the initial surge, like what if it's like the best lobster with the best shrimp shrimp, and your favorite things all at once, that might hit that 350 like cocaine. It will. The difference is, is that is going to drop faster from the lobster than it is from the cocaine because sugar only increases the dopamine and eating only increases the dopamine. Whereas drugs of abuse, so let's say the cocaine, not only does it increase the dopamine, but it also slows the reuptake of dopamine okay. in the cleft. So that makes a difference. So and that by the means way, that dopamine slowly goes down. I mean, I, I was in Mexico once and I had this shrimp that was surrounding a small piece of lobster covered with a hollandaise sauce. I think my dopamine levels were clearly higher than usual. Um. Probably thousand to two thousand percent like methamphetamine. No, because remember I asked that. Can I know, the best you, of everything additive higher than meth? No, that's nope. true. Yeah. Ding ding no. Okay, so let's talk a little bit more. Food and sugar adri- addiction trivializes trivializes drugs of abuse. So sometimes people who have a legit sugar addiction or food addiction, they don't get anything out of substances or drugs of abuse. Really. Once they hit a certain point, if they aren't at that extreme, extreme point, they can like, you know, totally change over. But so, so it's more of a compulsion. Correct. So it's not an official addiction, 
but it acts the same. There's, it's a habitual, it's compulsive, there's a cycle. Well, think about it. Even, you know, when we talk about some of the different drugs of abuse, so much of the is the is the ritual. Exactly. Right? And so that's one thing a lot of these things have in common is that ritual. And that will be on the next Sugar Addiction Podcast. We will break it down and actually go through the DSM-5 criteria and how sugar addiction can actually fit. couple last points on this. Okay, just two then. Where is the key to breaking this cycle of sugar and food addiction? Mm. It's adolescence. Why? Well, it's the key in development. For some reason, now there is that whole intrauterine thing that we talked about a couple of things ago that, you know, it can lead to the same way that the, you know, the pleasure sensations and mom and all of the positive dopamine related to food can impact the developing fetus. But for some reason, adolescence with all the rapidly changing things in the neurodevelopmental neurobiology, yada, 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 and all the hormones all going through there, adolescence is key. So exposure to sucrose leads to escalated intake of all sugars. When you're an adolescent. When you're an adolescent. Dang it. That's that's what happened when I was eating those seven chocolate-covered donuts every day during high, <laughs> high school. Oh, my Thank God. I was, you it, were, it you scarred me. Was this, like, was this an okay, like, was this? Every day I did it. I know, but. For, like, two years. But did Dr. Benjamin okay this? No, no. And I, <laughs> I sadly, I drank a real Mountain Dew with that. Here's what's interesting. So Isaac, my oldest, is um, almost 13 now, <sighs> right? 13, I can't even believe it. So his, the, the varsity soccer coach, you know, and his, he's somehow a JV soccer player, which is point. weird to me. Anyway, he comes home from like one of his two-a-days this fall and goes, Mom, I can't drink soda anymore. I can't drink, he said pop. I call it soda. I can't drink pop. I'm like, what? He's like, I'm giving up pop. Really? What I said, he's like, "Yep, it's just not good for my running and soccer." And I'm like, "Wait, who are you?" Like he's he's kind of turned it around. Mm. When I was in Oregon, he made pasta with chicken and corn, all on his own, and I'm didn't off burn the my pasta house and chicken, <laughs> but, but skip the corn. Okay. Anyway, keep going. so if you have a lot of sucrose or sugar and all of that in your adolescence, it's going to lead to escalated intake of all types of sugar. It's going to drop the CFOS immunoreactive cells in your nucleus accumbent, accumbens. Say that again. Okay. Accumbens. Accumbens. Uh, no, just that word because you must it up. CFOS immunoreactive cells in the nucleus accumbens. So again, what you're saying is if you eat all the sugar when you're an adolescent, it just messes you up forever. Yes. And here's what's also cool. Not cool. So I can't help it. So... We talked about in the alcohol thing a couple episodes ago, I think it was all related to the sugar, about how people who stop drinking and, you know, with are in recovery with their alcohol use disorder can sometimes become addicted to sugar. Yep. And they're they're kind of tied together. Or if a parent has an alcohol use disorder, their offspring can have a sugar issue. issue. But if the sugar exposed adolescents themselves have a higher preference for cocaine into adulthood, but not alcohol. Interesting. Interesting, right? And this is all secondary to a change in the motivational aspect of food intake versus hedonic properties. Mm. Nothing like hedonism. (laughs) Okay, last two statements. 
Okay. Genetic predisposition to addiction and exposure to sugar in adolescence alters and heightens the wanting mechanisms for drugs of abuse. Because sugar makes you want more sugar, and it's that whole cycle, and therefore it kind of makes you kind of jump on the wanting more and more cycle, the chasing of the dragon cycle. It's almost like a Willy Wonka show. Right. I want more. Never mind. Yes, the blue girl. Yeah. The blueberry. Anyway, I, can't I don't know where I came right up with now, that. But, but that's yeah. that's Sue. Violet. Yeah. Violet with a weird, long, fancy last name. Okay, so the it's sugar addiction is just like any other use disorder. It's that interplay of genetic predisposition, that 50% genetics, with the interplay with the environment, so and with all of the epigenetics. So it's the combination of both, like everything else. So I should warn my kids and grandkids about donuts. Don't eat donuts. I think your kids already have figured it out for your grandkids. Huh, interesting. But right. that's the thing. You have to make sure, though, going into the adolescent period, they don't... You know how sometimes, like, the Catholic school kids... I can only say this because my kids go to Catholic school and yours did. So the Catholic school kids, sometimes when they get out of the Catholic school system, go way crazy. Remember that whole, yeah. like, flip? So you don't want your kids too limited in childhood, and then they become adolescents, and they have a little bit more freedom and their own money. And now they're like... I'm going to eat all the things my mom and dad wouldn't let me eat when they're teenagers. So it's understanding portion control and understanding the benefits of nutrients. And So if my grandkids say, let's go to the bakery, I'll be like, no, we're going to go to the the market, the outdoor (laughs) market and get some vegetables. Well, no, I think with grandpa and grandma, since they eat so healthy at home with grandpa and grandma, they can have the Dairy Queen treat because it's in moderation. Oh, perfect. (laughs) Sorry, Casey. All right, well... I think we went over our time. A for, lot over. We shouldn't about, be talking about sugar at all. Remember but, when you laughed and said it was two pages wasn't going to be enough? No, it wouldn't be. So thank you everyone for listening. We will probably be back next week if Dr. Heather is not on another vacation. That was not vacation. That was so hard work. I didn't sleep for like 30 hours. Perfect. All right. Well, thanks again for listening. Oh, really? All right, Casey, we'll let you take over. And we'll let Casey put a little music on her. Thanks.
Surely you won't meet you again. 